Listen now to the Word of God, Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I have need of nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So reads the Word of God. I mentioned last week that I had received no questions about Revelation. I want you to know that that's a little bit misleading. I hadn't intended to be misleading, but I found out from your responses that I'd given the wrong idea. I've had many conversations about Revelation and answered many questions about it. I just was referring to written questions, like I mentioned back at the beginning of the series, that would be a bit more publicly answered, and I said we would figure out a way to do that. Well, uh, having mentioned that last Sunday, uh, the, the problem has been solved. The questions are flowing, all right? And I'm, I'm glad to, uh, to, to talk about them. I want to mention a few of them this morning, and one additional thing, even before we get started in this uh, lesson on Laodicea. Um, in the message on Sardis a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that half-hearted devotion doesn't cut it. Weekend Christianity won't do it. You recognize that language? I said lazy, slow, unfinished works of faith are like stained garments, not white garments. And so the question came, what is half-hearted devotion? What is weekend Christianity? Unfinished works of faith. Those are strong metaphors, and maybe we know what they mean, but what are we talking about? And I would just say this refers to people who make a profession of faith and don't live out that profession. They may even attend church somewhat regularly, but Christ really isn't the center of their lives. That's what I'm talking about. They make their decisions on a different basis than the pursuit of holiness in relationship with Jesus. So just as those in Sardis, it's hard to know whether they have genuinely trusted Christ as Savior. It's important to understand that difference, that you can't lose your salvation once it has been genuinely granted 
but there can be some question about whether it has been genuinely granted. And even for those who seem to profess an understanding of the gospel and yet really aren't living in line with the gospel, really aren't living according to God's word and the power of the Spirit, seeking to honor Jesus, what's missing there for the most part is just an assurance of salvation on their part or on the part of others who see their lives. They're just not sure. It's important to distinguish between those two, between our actual salvation and the state of it before God and our assurance of it, whether ourselves or others. And so that's who we were talking about with those. Another question came, why these seven churches? Why not Corinth or Philippi or Galatia or some of the other churches of the New Testament? And I would say first, Ephesus is included, so that's one of those prominent New Testament churches. Uh, but as to the rest, John is writing from the island of Patmos off the coast of Asia Minor. We mentioned that in week one. That's modern-day Turkey. And these seven churches line up according to the mail delivery route through that region of the, of the country. So that's, that's one of the basic parts of, of the ordering of them. This is just how they would have been delivered, and these are seven churches along that route. Still, though, it's hard to believe that their ordering is that random, that it's just the mail route that's being followed because, as has been pointed out by Greg Beal and others, there's a, a chiastic structure to the messages of the seven letters. So there's, there's, a, there's a discernible structure in the, the collection of the seven themselves that suggests anything but random. So just as a bottom line, why these seven? I think John's location at the time of his writing, accounts for the geographic zone that became the target of those letters. I think the circumstances then that each church faced accounts for their selection as one of the seven churches because there were many other churches in Asia Minor, at least seven more that we know historically, so at least 14, and these seven were selected. So it's probably the, um, the circumstances that they faced that accounts for their selection. And then also probably selecting seven, as we mentioned once before, as a representation, that apocalyptic number of completeness. Selecting seven means that these messages to these churches are intended for all churches in all times. So um, there's, uh, there's that question. We can say more about that if there are some follow-ups there. What happened to these seven churches in history? That's a good question. I've I've decided not to answer that one here, but just to use this opportunity to tell you that we have set up a page on our website. It's right there on the, it's a, there's a button for it right on the main page, right in the same vicinity as, uh, as um, streaming the services that just says questions and answers in Revelation. This question is addressed there. So uh, I'll use that question just uh, this morning as an opportunity to advertise that spot and uh, send you there for additional questions. There are about a dozen of those posted at this point, so uh, we're only doing three or four of them this morning. After last Sunday, I was asked an important question, and I know this one is on the heart of many. The question is, do you believe in a rapture? Do you think God will uh, keep believers during the hour of trial that's mentioned? And are, you, uh, are we in that period now? That's a very good question, and I know we can differ widely on our answers to that particular question. So I would just say, in summary, yes, I believe in a rapture. Uh, Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 4. He uses that language, caught up together. Uh, that's a, a Greek word that's translated into Latin as raptio, and that's where we get the word rapture from. It's that catching up together of the church. 
Paul's talking to the Thessalonian believers about the dead in Christ will rise first, and then those who are alive at the coming of the Lord will be caught up together to meet him in the air. That's what the rapture is, uh, according to 1 Thessalonians 4. So yes, I do. I just believe that it's of all one piece with the second coming of Christ. And that's a little different from what some of you have heard through most of your life. But looking at the scriptures, I just believe that that's the way it works best. But I also, like the rest of you, just hold this with an open hand. I say that's my favored view of the ones that I've looked at, but I won't become dogmatic on any of these. What I will say about that, why I see it as all of one piece with the second coming of Christ, is because Paul mentions right there in 1 Thessalonians 4, the trumpet of God verse 16, which I believe is the same as the last trumpet that Paul mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, and the loud trumpet that Jesus mentioned in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 31, and the seventh trumpet that is uh, the, the, the story of which is told in Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. I just don't see a reason to separate any of those into different events. I think they're talking about all one and the same event, and so that's why I favor that view. So yes, uh, uh, I believe in a rapture. Yes, there is a great tribulation. Yes, I believe Scripture says we're in it already. I believe it extends from Jesus' ascension to his return, and then evil opposition, the wrath of the beast just increases in intensity throughout that time up until the very last days when, like birth pangs, that's the image that Jesus used. It's become very intense and very frequent as the end draws near. Uh, But we are building toward that even now. That's why we see signs all around us that point us to the return of the Lord because those, um, those signs are already quite present, quite visible, quite identifiable. It's just challenging to know exactly what to do with them in terms of a sense of timing because they weren't given to us in Scripture to determine a sense of timing. They were given to us as reminders that Jesus is coming and that we need to live in light of that day. A lot of the confusion comes when we try to do with them things that Scripture doesn't or or didn't intend. And that's what creates a lot of the differences that we see. So anyway, that question is on the site as well. Um, I also believe that God will keep his people from feeling his wrath as it is poured out at that hour. That's what the promise in Revelation 3.10 is talking about, I believe. He will keep his people. That is a faithful and uh, reliable promise from Jesus um, that he will keep his church from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Does that mean he will keep them by taking them out of the world so that they don't experience it? What does it mean that he will keep them by essentially putting a roof over their heads? It's an image I'll use in the, in the question and answer page on our website. Uh, much like he did with Israel when they were in Egypt, the ten plagues were poured out, but it did not land on the people of God. They were protected during that time, and I think that's an image of the, the last days of how it will work for us. So that's, uh, didn't intend to take that much time with that question, but it's an important question. And I appreciate it. It's on the hearts and, lives, hearts and minds of many of us. One final one before we get into this morning. Is eschatology a primary or a secondary issue of our faith? That's a good question. And I would say I think it's both, really. I think it's primary in one sense and it's secondary in another. 
It's primary in the sense that we are called to live with our attention focused, unrivaled on the return of Christ and on our readiness for that day. So it's primary in that sense. But it's secondary with regard to the precise ordering of the accompanying events that surround that day. Those signs remind us of Jesus, that Jesus' coming is near, just as I said a moment ago. But we shouldn't be arguing over those or still less dividing over them. We can discuss them and try to figure out how do, how do you put this stuff in order. But we need to remember, even as we're doing so, that putting them in a neat chronological order is not what the church is called to do. Hearing them with the ears of the Spirit and responding with obedience and enduring faith, that is what the church is called to do with those signs. So just a taste of some of the questions and answers that will be available on the website, and I'm confident that we'll bring maybe a question or two more as well as we move ahead. But now let's uh, dive into this last of the seven letters, this letter to Laodicea. Laodicea was a sister city of Colossae and Hierapolis, in fact, it's mentioned by Paul, Laodicea is, a couple of times in Colossians chapter 4. The Laodiceans were supposed to read Paul's letter to Colossae, and the Colossians were supposed to read Paul's letter to Laodicea, but we don't have that letter. That was not a canonical letter. It doesn't appear in our scriptures. Jesus' letter to Laodicea is much more familiar to us, and it comes here at the close of chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. In fact, portions of this Laodicean letter are among the more familiar texts to us from the whole of the seven letters, as we'll see when we move through it. But still, even so, even though I know it's familiar, I wonder how closely we've really listened to it. And I want us to listen to it closely this morning. So let's look at this final letter in our same four stages that we've used for the previous six. The first, uh, the ascription is in verse 14, then the assessment in verses 15 through 17. These are listed there in your bulletin. The assignment in verses 18 and 19, and then the assurance in verses 20 to 22. So let's just walk through this letter and see where it takes us. In terms of the ascription, the closest this greeting comes to referencing the vision of chapter 1, like most of the letters have done, the closest this one comes is to echo a couple of the characteristics that we recognize from that vision, namely the faithful witness, uh, Jesus being the faithful witness of the firstborn of the dead in verse 5 of uh, chapter 1. So there's a little bit of a reflection there. But we also know from Scripture, from the testimony of the prophet Isaiah primarily, that Israel had been appointed to be God's witnesses. Isaiah 43 verses 10 through 12 talk about Israel's role, but they had failed in that calling, and now Jesus is the faithful and true witness. As before, I think that backdrop is a little bit more present in John's mind or in the mind of Jesus as he speaks this message to the church. The fact that Israel has failed in their calling, and now he is the faithful and true witness to the gospel, faithful and true witness to his own resurrection. He is God's resounding and reliable amen. We read here, verse 14. He's the beginning of, the, of God's creation, which I believe here is pointing to His new creation. He's the beginning of the new creation in His resurrected body. And that was also promised by Isaiah in Isaiah 65. 
So that's who we're hearing from, the faithful and true witness, the amen who is the, the beginning of the new creation life in this world. These Laodiceans, however, weren't, weren't clearly on the road to that final destination. They weren't clearly headed toward God's new creation. It's one of those assurance things we mentioned just a few minutes ago. They made profession of faith in Christ, but looking at their lives, you couldn't see it. Here's another example of that same sort of half-hearted witness or weekend Christianity. The Laodiceans weren't discernibly on the road to salvation. In fact, we see here that they were worse off than any church Jesus had yet addressed. He had nothing good to say about this church, and it stands alone in that category among these seven letters. They were disgusting to Jesus. So it's not just that there was nothing commendable. He was about to throw them up. Verse 15, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. They were like tepid water to a thirsty man. Useless. But beyond even that, they were nauseating. Jesus wasn't saying here that that hot is good and cold is bad, like like we might, you know. Someone is either hot toward God, meaning they're devoted to Him, or or cold, meaning they're indifferent. That's not how He's using hot, hot and cold here. Both hot and cold are good. They're useful. It's the lukewarm that isn't. Hierapolis, just a few miles north of Laodicea, had hot springs with, with wonderfully therapeutic qualities. Colossae, just a few more miles southeast from Laodicea, had had cold springs, which had richly refreshing qualities to them. Laodicea had neither. But by the time the, the hot water reached Laodicea from Hierapolis, for example, through underground aqueducts, it was lukewarm, it was smelly mineral water wasn't hot enough to relax their muscles. It wasn't cold enough to satisfy their thirsts. So he'd say, drink it down and you'll almost certainly throw it up. That was what the Laodicean church was to Jesus. Absolutely useless, just like their water. And if something didn't change, he was going to spit them out of his mouth. This image is quite similar to removing the Ephesians lampstand. Remember that? But it's nowhere near as genteel. It's nowhere near as soft. It's a disgusting image of Jesus saying, this church isn't worth it. So to be perfectly clear, Laodicea's survival as a church was in jeopardy. Still, look at their self-perception. Verse 17. You say, I am rich. We'll pause there. They were rich. One of the richest cities of the ancient world. They had very profitable industries, particularly three of them. They had a banking or financial industry that made them much money. They had a medical school that was famed in the ancient world. And they had textiles. They they made... Clothing, material, wool, sort of a uh, 
purple-black wool. Destroyed by an earthquake in AD 61, they need any help from the Roman imperial government in order to rebuild their city. Their medical school is wide ophthalmology and audiology. There were beneficial and, and, and quite profitable they produced there at the medical school. One was for eyes. During that time, they also produced, as I said, mass produced clothing of different sorts. Laodicea was famous for all. They said in verse 17 they had nothing. They had need of nothing in Laodicea, as far as they could tell, not from any worldly perspective. Yet it seems like the that we can still make today. Material blessings is spiritual blessings. They may have been rich. They may have been influential. Been revered by others, envied by others, regard like the financial and medical today. But Jesus said they were seriously deceived, and the net result was nauseatingly worthless to him. So to stay with verse 17 for a moment, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They were like the emperor in that story by Hans Christian Andersen, parading around, thinking he was wearing ornate clothing that was invisible only to fools, when in fact he was wearing nothing at all. They were naked in Laodicea, completely self deceived. And why were they in such a state? It's because they were to Jesus just as he was to them, essentially useless. We know they were useless to him. He appears to have been useless to them. They had need of nothing. It was important enough to them to claim to be Christians, probably fire insurance against the, the possibility of eternal judgment. But aside from that, Jesus made little or no difference in their lives day to day. He just didn't matter. That's the picture of lukewarm. Apart from attending church, and, and probably most Sundays, that is, unless something important came up, maybe a little league game or big, big league tickets, apart from attending church weekly and maybe wearing a fish bracelet, they were they were pretty much indistinguishable from the world around them. Make no mistake, they were good people in Laodicea. Self-support, tax, well-trimmed lawns. They were gracious at dinner parties. 
morally upright city life. They had need of nothing. Christmas wreaths from the Laodicean Boy Scouts and cookies from the girls. Because they understood civic pride. In fact, they did most things the right way. The same one described as mediating. They met the world's standard in exemplary ways. And they certainly met their own standard as well. But they did work. Wretched, pitiable, poor, and naked. in light of their local industries. Poor as compared to banking and clothing. These folk were completely deceived and in Smyrna was financially poor but rich in faith. Laodicea was filthy rich but had no spiritually commendable works at all. Whatever faith they may have professed was utterly ineffective. They, they, they wanted to, to fit in, not to stand out. Life was good in Laodicea. All needs were met in Laodicea. It was a great place to live and work and raise a family. It's much like DuPage County. And they just got drawn into it all. Drawn into the affluence. And to the privileged position of living where they lived. Their values got reversed and they started seeing visible things as more important than invisible. They started trusting in their physical eyes and ears more than their spiritual ones. They'd fallen into living life by the standards and thinking everything was That's the truth. But God was about to throw up. We need to hear this one, don't we? Comes only from Jesus. Only from His gold, verse 18. He uses a commercial image, a, a, a financial image to draw them in and to help them understand. But what he's just saying as this assignment section begins in verses 18 and 19 is that true wealth comes only from him. Only his gold will never lose its value. Only 
white garments from him, not their black ones, could cover their form of nakedness. And only his salve, not theirs, would cure their blindness. The currency that they needed, the currency that Jesus is referring to here, that they needed to purchase these resources from him, then as it still is today. Namely, verse 19, that's what needed to happen in order to see it. White, hot, course reversal of faith. Laodicea is now the fifth Jesus to repent. it all starts. Only Smyrna and Philadelphia were told the same direction as they were going. Why? Everybody else needed to turn from something. Hear that. And need to turn around. And in verses 20 to 22, if Laodicea would hear what Jesus is saying to the churches and turn in repentance and faith, if they would do that, they'd discover that Jesus was standing right there waiting for them to fellowship with them. Verse 20, he was even knocking, as it were, at the very door of their hearts, waiting for them, offering intimate table fellowship with anyone who would hear him and respond, anyone at all. We talked as this word repentance has come back again and again through these letters, about the fact that there is no distance you can travel from God that cannot be covered in that single step of repentance. We mentioned with relation to the church in, La in uh, Ephesus where the, the, the calling was to remember, repent, and return, and then a couple of weeks later, remember, return, repent, we can say that as three steps. There's no, there's no distance that can be traveled, that, that you can travel from God that can't be covered in reverse in three steps. Remember, repent, return. But the active one is repent. It's the single step. And if Laodicea repents, they turn to say, what, what is that noise is knocking? I hear knocking. I did not hear it a moment ago, and now I do. That's what needed to happen in Laodicea. Their ears and eyes were deadened to what was around them until the Spirit penetrates their hearts and repentance born of faith comes out. And all of a sudden, their ears are tuned to the knocking. You think, that's weird. How does that work? Well, I don't know. Uh, ask the Jews. Their eyes are blinded to salvation. How does that work? That's a divine judgment from a perfectly just and holy God 
during these days. Scripture gives testimony to it, promises it from the Old Testament, affirms it in the New, from Isaiah to Romans. That's how God works. He judges people who turn away from Him in their hearts, but when they hear His calling and turn back to Him in repentance and faith, all of a sudden they're seeing things that they long since forgotten. They're hearing things that they haven't heard for who knows how long. The Spirit of God is resensitizing the human heart. That's, that's bringing about life and developing it in likeness to the one who said, I am the life, Jesus himself. If Laodicea would repent they discover that Jesus was standing right there waiting for them, right there at the door of their hearts, knocking and offering intimacy with himself for any who would respond. Look how he began. Behold, verse 20. He, he's, he's not just knocking on the door. He's calling out, look, look, here I am. Do you see me? Again, a visual image. But this is also an image of their need to have Him penetrate their hearts, penetrate their self-reliance and their self-sufficiency. Those who respond will receive lasting riches and influence. Find the way again. Behind in this world, it's the kind that goes with you. If they're faithful and train with Jesus, these people to him, they will reign with him. He said, I conquered and sat on the throne. You conquer, you'll sit with me on my calling. They'll reign with him. The one who is faithful and true witness, verse 14. The same. He conquered sin and death at the cross. And as we witness of sin in our lives by and the victory that He's won for us at the cross, we're granted the privilege. will taste of all that Laodicea thought while they were fooling themselves. We can think we have attention to Jesus day to day at all. So, they, we begin imitating Jesus as a faithful and true witness or we can face him as the faithful and true judge. Chapter 19, verse 11. When he returns on a white horse to judge the earth, what's the name that's written on him? Same one is here, faithful and true. You're going to face him one way or the other. He's either your friend by repentance and faith, or he's your judge and you stand before him, before him who 
you out. That with these churches. Friends, this letter calls a faithful fellowship with and fruit our Lord Jesus. Just thing that seems like it has worth and value these days, except for faithful fellowship. There is true value. It's a to fight hard against the anesthetizing influent world flesh to resist the devil it's a call in that recognize that Jesus is reaching out to you and to me he's taking the initiative promising with any fellowship is for us today, I believe, and certainly the one that I hear and hear it put this for us today is tell yourself the truth. It's harder than you think. Tell yourself the truth about who you are, about what you love, about how you live. Just tell yourself the truth. Seek God's grace to enable you, because there's no other way to do it than that. To see your own heart and tell yourself the truth. Don't try to whitewash what the Spirit brings to mind. Don't try to defend it. Don't try to excuse it. Don't try to deny it. Just repent and return. If Jesus says that he is about to spit you out of his mouth, don't try to prove that you're really not that all distasteful to him. That you're not all that distasteful to him. And friends, don't pull away because word from or disheartening. Those whom I love and discipline so your response to the loving pleading of Jesus your ear can't even discern at the moment no, I, I want to hear the knock I want to respond if a friend were driving full a washed out bridge you'd shout loudly and That's loving him. Who will ever feel guilty for having raised your because of what's at stake? When here, 
It's strong language. Language born of love and of when sin. Those who claim to be God's children, but fooling themselves, and they need to respond, need to repent. Too late. That's who Jesus is calling to. Hear, hear what the Spirit says to them. And respond. Turn your back on the. Run to Jesus. That's his call in this text. For all who believe, he has provided all that's needed for you to do just that. Repentance is a gift from God. If your heart is inclined that direction, don't resist that gift. Embrace it. Receive it and act on it. And friend, if it's not there, plead with him to grant it. Let's hear what the Spirit says to the churches today. Let's repent and turn to Him and receive the very life that He offers with all of its great and glorious riches and inheritance. And let's make no mistake that the riches and inheritance that are ours in Him are Jesus Himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There are riches, there are inheritance. They are what make heaven worth it. They are why we long for eternal life. They are why we live in light of that day, casting aside all, all that gets in the way of that pursuit. Let's repent and remember his death today as well at the table of the Lord, receiving the strength that he offers by his own grace to, to walk with him today, to live in light of his grace and mercy today and throughout the week ahead until we gather again. Join me as we pray and as we do, those who will be leading in worship and serving communion, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this strong but straightforward word from Jesus to finish these seven letters. What a reminder this is of how vulnerable we are in this world, especially when we live in an environment that offers such resource, such finery, such pleasure. Father, we are so inclined, we are so poor and needy that we can receive the immense resources that you give and somehow believe that we have earned them ourselves. Or worse, that there is something within us that is inherently more worthy than in those who haven't received such blessings from you in this life. Father, forgive us. That mindset is nauseating to you, and we hear that in your word. Forgive us, Lord God. Cleanse us. Grant us the mind and the heart of Jesus. 
bestow upon us that blessed gift of repentance and help us to honor you and how we respond to it. And now, Father, for those of us who know Christ as Savior and will enter into this remembrance of his death on our behalf, I pray that it might be done in faith, that we might receive the grace that you provide through it to walk in a manner worthy of you. Father, help us to be ones who do remember, who remember what the Lord has done for us and who remember it throughout the course of the week, not just at the moment of the act. And we entrust this time to you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.